and welcome to the Legal Wolf podcast, which was started a few months ago now to challenge the stigma of mental health around the world. I am not the usual host. My name is Elena, and usually the podcast is hosted by Steve Lawler, who today is sitting in the guest chair as opposed to the host chair because we have a special event. It is the 50th episode of The Legal Wolf. And for that, Steve has invited me, Elena, to ask him some questions about the podcast, about his life, and about what it's like to be a mental health lawyer. So Steve's LinkedIn description is quite long. It says that he is the managing director, panel accredited consultant mental health solicitor, trainer of medical professionals, student mentor, founder of the Legal Wolf podcast, visiting lecturer, mental health advocate, and hospital manager. And that is, first of all, the longest description I've ever seen on LinkedIn, and I do not know how he managed to bypass the character limit, but it also raises some questions about, you know, you, your story, your motivation and identity. So Steve, who are you? Give us a short overview. Okay, um, so this is rather terrifying, being the guest on my own podcast, for one. Uh, <laughs> in, in terms of who I am, so as you all know, my name, I won't repeat that. I am a mental health lawyer of 10 years experience and studied my law degree at Birmingham City University, and when I was studying my university degree, I started to have anxiety and it was rather chronic to the point whereby it was difficult to get out of bed some days. So getting out of bed was an achievement some days. Um, I still suffer with anxiety now. Um, it, it doesn't go away. but. I've learned how to cope with it and manage it over the years with developing various different coping strategies um, and also seeing a psychologist when I was at university because as has been said of me by so many people that I've talked to over the years that I always set the bar so high and I'm kind of an insecure overachiever because I, I always want to please everyone, which, as I've learned in life, is impossible to do. So getting into mental health law, I, I literally fell into mental health law. Uh, I was on a VAC scheme, a local law firm, and the new mental health paralegal was being shown around the building being introduced and then the following day I found out that he'd quit um so he didn't last long um and then I was asked if I fancied the job and I was like yeah great it'd be a job start earning some money being more independent and there was no interview it was literally I was just offered the job uh, I therefore got the job and it, it was a very steep learning curve 
the initial stages of being a mental health lawyer. So when I went home and told my parents, oh, I've got a job, I'm a mental health paralegal. They asked me what that was. And I basically said, well, I would be talking to people with schizophrenia, bipolar, autism, learning disorder, um, personality disorder. And my personality at that moment in time was very introvert, uh, not very confident, very shy. So the parents were very um, concerned how I would manage talking to these types of people, these types of individuals. You're in a room with them and you're having to talk to them and get information from them. But I wouldn't change the job that I do uh, now. I've changed as a person some will argue for the better some will argue the opposite um but i've been able to grow as a person being a mental health lawyer um no one day is the same you have to alter the way that you speak to a variety of clients and that can change multiple times during the day uh so I've obviously built up a level of experience within mental health law, worked for a couple of law firms in it. Then I decided to go self-employed, hence I'm the managing director of Lawless Law Limited, which I went self-employed in October of last year. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Um, and, And really since going self-employed, I've had more freedom, more flexibility, which led me to do all the other things in terms of training medical professionals, being a student mentor, setting up this podcast, doing some lecturing for the University of Law, and also follow my passion, which is to promote mental health. So that's essentially me my background I mean I, I, I could talk for ages about me and my background um, but it, it probably won't be of much interest to the listeners no actually that is exactly what we're going to do in this entire episode just talk about who is this person Steve and what does he do I really like how you kind of stumbled into the profession and used so-called vitamin C, which is connections, to get to where you are now. And it's always shocking how, how often that happens and how often that lands you in just the right places. Regarding your podcast, you always have episodes where you discuss mental health with an incredibly diverse group of people some lawyers like yourself, some who have become advocates as a form of, I guess, self-therapy after uh, coming out of serious mental illness. And you always talk about mental health very generally in your episodes, rather than focusing on only schizophrenia or only any of those labels. You really don't pick out a particular mental illness, but talk about the whole mental health thing as a whole is that a conscious choice or is that something that's just become intuitive to you initially it was a conscious choice so in in terms of how the podcast came about 
it, it's not one of these fantastic stories whereby I'm sat in a pub with my mates and we're discussing podcast ideas and then, and then I say, oh, I know what we should do. We should do a podcast on mental health. And all my mates say, yeah, that's a really good idea, Steve. No, that is not how it started. This podcast literally started um, with me lying in bed couldn't get to sleep and I then just started thinking and I was thinking wouldn't it be good to do a podcast around mental health Uh, I've got connections I know professionals within the mental health sector in terms of psychiatrists social workers fellow mental health lawyers nurses and we could have them on and ask them about their job to promote the mental health sector because it tends to get negative press um and then i was thinking of a name for it and again the name legal wolf is very distinct you wouldn't necessarily think it is a podcast and that it necessarily talks about mental health so uh, The name was probably one of the easiest things for me to come up with because legal is my background and Wolf is after the football team that I support. Yes, I'm a Wolves fan. Anyone in England who holds that against me, tough. That's your problem, not mine. Um, And then as soon as I thought of the name, I thought, yes, that is the name that I want. And then I immediately did a search to make sure that there was not another podcast called Legal Wolf. And as far as I can tell, there wasn't one. Um, So then essentially the idea of the podcast was born, but getting the logo right, for the podcast was essential so I contacted the guy who did my logo Steve Samula and he did my logo yep yep keep it very close in terms of the same name as me kind of does the designs Um, plus it like avoids confusion with uh talking to different people with different names and i basically said to him i want a logo which has the wolf head in and to relate to mental health and he said yeah fine not a problem and then when he got back to me with the logo it was the green ribbon with a wolf head and obviously the green ribbon represents mental health and as soon as I saw it I thought right great because even if the name doesn't say it's a mental health podcast the logo definitely does because most people know what the green ribbon stands for Um, and that was the best bit of money that I spent to get that logo done because that is so unique and key to the podcast um obviously over the last few months the podcast has evolved uh very very quickly 
Um, it's gained a lot of traction. It's gained a lot of guests. I think so far there's probably uh, about 80, 90 guests um, that are either recorded and been released are due to be recorded or are booked in to be recorded um and there's been people from 48 countries come on the podcast and it, it, it's just been fast i mean you yourself elena have been on it um we've had people from taiwan new zealand fiji you're doing a recording session 9 p.m uk time because it's like morning in fiji um, or you're having meetings with um, Gareth and Grant in New Zealand at 10 p.m., 10.30 p.m. UK time, and it's the following morning there, so whereby it's pitch black where I am, it's beautiful sunshine there. Um, so it, it's, it, it's just been a phenomenal rise, and I think if I focused it specifically on a certain mental illness, I don't think people would connect with it as much, whereby if you're discussing how mental health is perceived in a particular country, what that country is perhaps doing to normalise the conversation, reduce the stigma and what can be done, people can more get behind that idea. So that's why I've left it more broad in terms of just to discuss mental health because there is so much that mental health covers absolutely it does so i love that i finally know the answer to the mystery of what the podcast title means because not me not being british i didn't know that it was a team and that it was a reference to something other than the animal the wolf <laughs> So mystery solved, everybody take good note if you want to get Steve a present. Perhaps during the recordings, you've also sometimes worn a tricot or a shirt, so I could have figured. But yeah. my hypothesis had been a totally different one regarding the podcast, and I do want to touch upon it a little bit. Um, the concept of a wolf, right, is, is something, <laughs> the wolves are adorable and cute and I would love to cuddle one. At the same time, they do have the reputation of, you know, being fierce and kind of going at their prey and ripping it apart. And therefore, the, the term wolf has been used as a metaphor for lawyers very, very, very often. If you go on Google Scholar or just on Google in general, you enter legal profession wolf, you'll get a bunch of articles, even peer-reviewed ones, which draw on this kind of metaphor. There's one which, um, one, one article which I drew on extensively in my thesis on mental health law um, by a guy called George Anas. And he wrote an article on doctors and lawyers and wolves and about how lawyers and doctors are both dominating kind of the people they're supposed to serve and have this professional hegemony over their people, over their, um, the people who depend on them for care. And he had this vision that hopefully someday he will see doctors and lawyers working together. And even if they continue to be viewed as wolves, he wanted their prey to not face inequality and injustice. And he had this beautiful article and 
seeing your podcast and what kind of people you bring together and the stories they tell about how lawyers and doctors, you know, the alleged wolves work together shows that the dream of this one, one author really came true. But this does raise a question about, you know, lawyers and doctors are kind of elitist sometimes, you know, law school is really expensive, you need to be rich first to afford that, that at least is the stereotype. So when you interact with clients or with people um, who potentially could view you as a very dominant figure, how do you use you know, your own people skills or even law to empower them rather than to overpower them? That's a very interesting question. And I understand why from the outside, if you've been to law school, you are loaded and you can afford to pay out and study law. And believe you me, some, some of my friends who are probably listening to this podcast, because I study law, they think I'm loaded and I'm not. Um, so a bit more background about me. Um, so I'm just an ordinary lad. I'm not, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I'm not elitist. I'm not privileged um, in that sense. I am, was uh, born in Wolverhampton, live in Dudley, in the West Midlands. And I was the first generation of my family to go to university. And in order to afford to go to university to study law, I obviously took a loan out with the student loan company, which I'm still paying off to this day. Um, it is expensive. It was around about 3000 a year. Plus on top of that, you have the student loans and you have the grants and the bursaries, which thankfully the grants and the bursaries you don't have to pay back. Otherwise, the debt would be a lot more. Um, and when I was younger, my dad ran his own company. He was an electrician. My mom had a stroke um, just before I was born and then stopped work to look after me. And very, very happy childhood. Wouldn't change that for the world. It was brilliant. Um, now, I, I, I can also understand why lawyers and wolves, you would see a correlation. And yeah, with some lawyers, they are like that. If you look at corporate lawyers, they have to be like that because that is their job to be like that. They have there's to the be other, quite... There's the other metaphor of them being sharks as well. You know, the shark tank, yeah. the grants. So yeah. just a lot of animals which are actually kind of cute but they are perceived as really aggressive and fierce yeah um but being a mental health lawyer it will not do you any favors if you are abrupt blunt obnoxious and not liked because in order to be a mental health lawyer Obviously, you need to know the law and you need to know how to apply the law, but you also need to have a good personality. 
which means you're well liked, people can get on with you easy enough, and you are willing to collaborate with other professionals in order to get the best outcome for your client. And essentially, being a mental health lawyer, we are representing the most vulnerable in our society because they are detained on a section. And a lot of the time, you will have the stereotypical, I don't want you talking to my doctor because I want you to grill the doctor during the tribunal hearing. I don't want you to give them a heads up. But that doesn't always work in a lawyer's favour. If you want to get the best outcome for your client, you need to work collaboratively with not only the doctors, but the nurses, the social workers, any external professionals. And you will work together to achieve the very best outcome possible for your client to live as normal of a life as possible in the community. Um, and that is why, and looking back now, it amazes me that I even went into mental health law and thought that I would succeed in it because I was the complete opposite kind of person back then to what I am now. I was very introvert, very shy, wouldn't really communicate that much or even that well beforehand. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about lawyers. One is that they are loaded, which, believe you me, I'm not loaded. Um, yes, I own a car, I own a house. Um, I've obviously set up my own company, but I'm not loaded. Um, mental health law is uh, funded by legal aid. So, and, and that legal aid is a fixed fee as well, uh, which kind of puts more pressure on you because the more files that you build, then the more money that your company will make. Um, so th there are a lot of mis misconceptions out there about lawyers, but I, I, I can see um, why lawyers are compared to wolves. It's as if the wolf that they present is a shell that they show to the outside world that they are a lawyer they are they've worked so hard to to be there and they they have this sense of entitlement that they can act and be a prick when they uh, they don't have that entitlement to to act that way um and I think just by being yourself as a lawyer is the best way to be. Don't don't put on any airs and graces. Just be be you, and that that would would be probably the best bit of advice I would give to any lawyer or anyone who wants to become a lawyer. Don't don't think you have to fit a specific mold because you don't. This is so accurate as well to the kind of discovery journey I've made. I, I studied international law as my bachelor's and people warned me to not get tattoos because that would not be professional. And I 
I got a tattoo, which uh, had a very important meaning to me relating to my own mental health journey. And I'd wanted that tattoo for, I guess at that point, six, seven years, just simply to, to put my mental health journey on my body. And ultimately I thought, you know what, screw it. I'll get it if somebody will deny me a job for doing something to my body that will make me feel better. It's just art. How would that be a hindrance for my own legal uh, career trajectory? So even to that perspective, it's not even personality, it's just looks. They're also just be yourself. And this reminds me of the show Better Call Saul, right? He yeah. he's not loaded at all you start off with the very first episode seeing that Saul Goodman who you know from Breaking Bad and like he's he's like creative he's artsy he's himself and then you see him in that first episode of uh, Better Call Saul which is like five six years before Breaking Bad starts and he has this shabby little car and he has this gray suit yeah. And he's hiding himself. And throughout the entire show, you see him embracing more who he is. A criminal, yes, but he's embracing his own, his own style. And then he starts wearing these flashy suits and just becomes the Saul Goodman that you came to love during Breaking Bad. So <laughs> I'm just going to liken you to him, but without the little morally dubious <laughs> touch that he does have. <sighs> So from when I first came across mental health law, I was very confused because uh, it's very black and white. It tries just, it's inherent to the legal profession and, and to law in general that stuff has to fit definitions. If you want to make a case in any kind of legal job, you always need to look at what's going on and look at the words you have in front of you and try to make those match together. And therefore, lawyers are in some way trained to see like the black and the white in a situation, whereas doctors would rather, you know, they wouldn't try to necessarily force a diagnosis on there, um, but would rather try to see the nuance of the symptoms. So has there been any situation where you where you thought, oh, God, law has such an unreasonable expectation of how mental health works, and I do not know how to argue this case? Or have you been able to make it work somehow to get the best case for your clients? Um, <clears throat> it's our job to make it work and to find the case for our clients. So, for instance, in the UK, the definition of a mental disorder within our Mental Health Act is any disorder or disability of the mind, which is so broad, it covers a wide range in types of diagnoses that can be categorised within that. Um, and when we as mental health lawyers prepare a case we read through reports that are prepared by the treating team so doctor nurse and a member of the community team but we also get an opportunity to read their medical records to see how they've been presenting because we can use that to argue for our client so for instance if when we read their notes and we have a six-week period 
for the whole of those six weeks, there's been no incident. So there's been no verbal aggression. There's been no physical aggression. There's been no head banging. There's been no ligatures being tied. They've been compliant with their medication throughout with very little prompting. They've been engaging with nursing staff. They've been going out on leave, which has gone well without concern. You can use all of that in an argument when you question the doctor when the doctor says well the degree of this disorder is moderate and then you can turn around and say well for the last six weeks there's been very minimal symptoms those symptoms have been controlled by medication their risk of aggression has reduced therefore how is the degree of the disorder moderate surely it would be more appropriate to class it as mild um, again, likewise, if the doctor is relying on risk to their own health, safety and to others on the day of the hearing, but you've looked at the notes and there is no mention in those notes that there has been any uh, headbanging or restraint or they haven't been secluded and there's been no self-harming, then you can use that and say, well, actually, how can you rely on this? Because for the last four six eight weeks there's there's been no incident so how can you rely on a risk to their own health and safety if they've been settled they've essentially been a model patient um and therefore how can you justify that when the medical records present a very different argument so we as lawyers are taught to um, analyze, overanalyze things. Uh, we are taught to read things and analyze them in a way that someone else wouldn't. And we're also taught to not only know what kind of questions that we're going to ask, but we're also taught to know what the doctor's going to respond to before he responds to it because we know what they're going to say so then we can prepare a counter question to counter what we already know what the doctor's saying and i'm not sound, saying that does sound pretty adversarial like you're really going at each other in the in the hearing well <laughs> i mean I, i'm not saying lawyers are clairvoyance because we we're, we're not but with years of experience, you kind of know what a doctor's going to say in response to your question. But in mental health law, tribunals are more inquisitorial rather than adversarial in criminal cases. So we aren't there necessarily to have a go at the doctor. We are there to do a job. And we're there to probe and ask questions and be inquisitive. So, for instance, some of the questions we might ask would be, what future plans do you have for this client? Or when would you be planning on granting them leave? Or are there any plans to change the medication? So then at least the client will have more of an understanding as to what's happening over the next few weeks in their care. And then another question that we ask is what positives 
do the professionals have about them? Because during the tribunals, there can be so much negativity mentioned. Um, and I always find it's good to try and mention some positives of the client so they don't go away from the hearing thinking, well, I didn't hear anything good in that hearing. Whereas I would like to think that the clients that I represent, they will hear some good things and positives from different professionals and they would also have more of an idea as to what the treatment plan is going forward so they even if they're not discharged they will have had some benefit from having a tribunal hearing that is in a sense this kind of therapeutic jurisprudence argument that having rights having a legal procedure can be empowering to people who yeah. are constantly portrayed as weak, as needing help, as needing care, as not being able to live on their own. And just having that legal proceeding where they're at the center and yeah. various people, various wolves are kind of trying to build up a three-dimensional character out of them and say, well, this is the person in the room and they are a person. That does yeah. sound quite lovely and really, really, really crucial, even if they don't get discharged. Well, I mean, absolutely. And when I spoke to a Canadian mental health lawyer two or three weeks ago, they obviously have mental health tribunals. But in their tribunals, which is different to ours, is that the doctor gets to question the client and essentially kind of rip apart their argument. And the doctor also has the opportunity to call witnesses. And that can be family members who would testify and say, he needs to stay in hospital for these following reasons. Now, to me and the Canadian mental health lawyer that I spoke to, both agreed that this can be very damaging for the doctor-client relationship because essentially if you take that approach once you've had the tribunal the trust and that relationship between doctor and patient is effectively gone because the doctor has essentially cross-examined their client during a tribunal hearing which cannot be good. Whereas over here in England, we ask our client to give their evidence first, but the doctor cannot cross-examine them. They can be asked questions by the tribunal panel um, if they have any questions, but it's a in my opinion, I think it's a far better way of how we deal with tribunal hearings over here than, say, in other countries. Um, and that is something that that is um, really uh, good to be a part of. It's quite interesting when you said that um, Canada has a rather harmful approach there. That does contradict or 
add in a very interesting way onto the impression of Canada that I had so far. When it comes to legal capacity or just in general decision-making capacity, Canada has a really, really nice uh, document and guidelines yep. there and standard operation procedures when it yep. comes to some aspects. But then, of course, a legal system is very multifaceted and develops in very interesting ways. So having, on the one hand, something that's better than in the UK or better than elsewhere, or a little bit more progressive, and on the other hand, something that's a little bit less progressive or more harmful, does create very interesting dynamics. Um, I do recommend then listening to that episode with the Canadian mental health lawyer mm -hmm. to learn more, as well as to the episode with me on Indian mental health law, because there we have a great, great, great legislation but a overburdened legal and medical system, which creates other interesting dynamics. Yes. So what is the mental health law community like? Not just in the UK, but you've talked to dozens of people now from the mental health law community and more. And this is the 50th episode, but <laughs> there are so many more to come as you announced. So what's the mental health law community like? Is there a bunch of people who have themselves struggled with mental illness or otherwise neuro, not neurotypical? Or is it an extremely compassionate community perhaps? Or is it just another law community? Um, it's, it's a different kind of community to other law communities. So being a mental health lawyer, they are few and far between. Um, because whenever we go to training events, you tend to see the same faces. Um, and there's not many new faces coming into it. Now, I suspect that one of the turnoffs, particularly over here, is that it's legal aid funded. So it doesn't impress law students with the big Vegas flashing lights of come and work for me, you're going to work like a hundred grand plus because you're just not. Um, I would say the main key qualities to be a mental health lawyer is you need to be a people person. You need to enjoy talking to people because each individual is different. They have their own backstory and you have to show empathy and be very compassionate and <laughs> No, I, I always find this funny about the word empathy because uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine said that I lacked empathy and it's like, really? Oh, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Yeah. Um, and it's like, mm, I think you got that one wrong slightly. Um, so, uh, yeah, the mental health law community, it's... It's very isolative because you're constantly on the road. You're driving from hospital to hospital. Well, we were pre-COVID. Now it's literally we're working from home because everything has gone online. But it is a, a tight-knit community. You kind of know everyone within the community because there's not many lawyers. I don't know if many have struggled with mental health. I obviously struggled with anxiety, you just learn to manage it on an on a daily basis some days it's worse than others today it was particularly bad because of recording this <laughs> um but it's okay 
but I, I, I think the mental health law community is is good. Um, it's 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 a very supportive network. You have colleagues that you can rely on, that you can call upon if you're in a jam and you need help with covering hearings. Um, I mean, in, in in terms of my own background, it, it, it's taken me a while to feel comfortable to talk about my own struggles with mental health and anxiety. And these have been going on for about 10 years at, at, at least. And the reason why I haven't spoken about it before is because you, if, if you talk about mental health within the legal profession, you can be classed as one of two things. You can be classed as, well, one of three things. One, that you're weak. Two, that you're not fit for purpose and therefore can't do your job, which is bullshit. Um, and the third one is that you lose respect of your peers. Now, during my training contract, in order to become a lawyer, the the anxiety got extremely bad for 12 of the 18 months because we have to do two different seats and when i moved from doing mental health i did civil litigation and you go from 100 mile an hour really busy at the office all the time to being office based and it's so so much slower that I couldn't comprehend that kind of change uh, it, it, it was very difficult for me um, then once I eventually got through that seat and that was a struggle you then go into family law which I hate with a passion, not really interested in it. I only did it because there was no other seat that I really wanted to do. Um, but then you're working for someone who the majority of the firm is, is terrified of and you, you don't know how they're going to be on any given day. So the anxiety gets a lot worse. Um, it, it, it did get really, really bad during those six months when I did family law. Uh, it wasn't an enjoyable six months. Uh, when I think about that time now, it, it does it not necessarily upset me, but it certainly scarred me and it's going to be difficult to get over that period in my life but I mean now I'm I'm obviously a lot happier I'm in a far better place mentally um I enjoy the the job that I do um which is huge for me because work is is everything um 
and obviously when you're running your own company as well that is another factor on top so then you I get to do all the paperwork and the client hearings and yeah. the marketing and the public relations and the actual caseload <laughs> yeah yeah what you were saying about really being emotionally scarred by having very precarious cases and very emotional cases, especially in family law, reminds me of a short, I guess, pilot research project that I did about two years ago. I wanted to know, since lawyers, just the general vast category of lawyers, are the people who help people in complex life situations a client probably needs more than just legal advice. They need somebody who will guide them through that problem. They need somebody to kind of lean on and know, hey, this person will, this lawyer will make my life better for me. It'll make everything okay again. And I talked to some lawyers, one of them a family lawyer, one of them a corporate lawyer, uh, one of them a legal aid lawyer who does most divorce cases, uh, one who does um, legal aid for for, for people who are imprisoned um, and then she gets them bail. So a diversity of, of lawyers. And interestingly, the people, the, the lawyers who had the most emotional cases, the ones in divorce proceedings, uh, criminal cases where they had a, I don't know, person accused of rape or murder, they said that in those cases, they really had to emotionally shut off. They couldn't mm -hmm. provide support mm -hmm. to the victim or to the whatever divorcee. Otherwise, they would have become far too overwhelmed. The lawyers, however, who worked in corporate stuff, they also had really, really emotional cases at times because if a company is about to go bankrupt, their client thinks, oh my God, my life will be over if my company goes bankrupt, please help me lawyer. But in those cases, the emotional stakes weren't as high. So those lawyers were very empathetic, very, you know, best buddy buddy with their client and also had long lasting relationships afterwards and friendships. So those cases where the emotional stakes weren't as high the relationship was much, much more empathetic and warm between the lawyer and the client. And you in your family law cases probably came in with your, your personality and you're taking the emotions of others in and therefore it overwhelmed you. And therefore it's even more shocking or even more amazing that you are such a wonderful mental health lawyer. Yeah. That's very nice of you to say, I mean, during the family law, I wouldn't necessarily, it was the cases, it was just the environment that I was in that was really difficult to handle and manage. Um, and being a mental health lawyer, you are more than a lawyer. You are at times a counsellor because a client can ring you and they just want somebody to talk to or they just want some advice on something completely different you could end up being um, a liaison between your client and the community team to start contact or you could even be in a position whereby you're instructing an independent social worker to find your client somewhere 
to live. So you're not just a lawyer and in mental health law, obviously with all of the reports that we read that are prepared for tribunal hearings, hospital managers hearings, you obviously read a lot of stuff um, about their backstory, which isn't always pleasant, but as a mental health lawyer, you, you just learn to detach yourself from that because you are there to do a job and you are there to represent this individual who has asked for you to represent them. So you then do your very best to represent that individual in the situation that they're in. Um, Pre-COVID, it was far easier to switch off because you had the drive home from a hospital for instance and you could switch off during that um and obviously you had the working week then you had the weekend and there was a clear distinction between the two but now the lines are blurred everyone's working from home so i mean to to be honest i haven't found it that difficult to switch off from it um because there's other things that I've got going on, like this podcast, like um, developing training for uh, medical professionals, businesses. I've got my company to keep on top of. So it's it's fairly easy to switch off from the mental health law side because there's so many other different things. So it's not you switching off. It's just you overwhelming yourself with other tasks to yeah. do, <laughs> like any great coping strategy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I'm saying I don't even have time to process this right now. I'm just gonna go do something else. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant strategy. Ten out of ten would recommend. <laughs> and you also said that you have started teaching, right? In fact, what I find quite sad is that if I want to do mental health law, one of the only places in the world to do an actual LLM, a master's degree in mental health law, is the UK. There's also one like in Canada, I think. But it's a real UK feature. There's no such thing in the Netherlands or in Germany and those civil law jurisdictions. So what's it like to teach or interact with the next generation of mental health lawyers who are explicitly doing a course only on mental health law? Is there a bunch of gems to be found in the student diversity group? That's an interesting question because I've obviously been tutoring some students who are studying mental health law privately. And when you get to see some of the questions that they're asked, you just look at them and you think, how is this question going to benefit them if they were to go into the field of mental health law they are so academically based it, it doesn't give them <laughs> any practical knowledge of what the job entails there is a fascinating article from like the 70s by a i think harvard law professor and he is the i think like the dean of the law faculty in the 70s he's a white old male but the article is so roasting of the legal um, education system he just says that 
throughout like 20 pages, it's just one long rant by this professor about how shitty legal education in general is because students come out of it and think, okay, I have no idea how to do this. I've done like three moot courts. Those aren't even what actually happens. Ah, help. So then in the end, he proposes this beautiful curriculum of what he would instead like a legal education curriculum to have. And uh, it's sad, I guess, that mental health law programs also do the same fallacies 40 years later. No, wait. Oh, God, it's 50 years later. Uh, well, uh, it, that's exactly right, because when you're at university studying law now, it might have changed since I did my law degree, because that was a good few years ago. But when I was at university, they teach you nothing about commercial awareness. And yet all law firms look for you to be commercially aware, i.e. Are you aware that you need to bring in X amount to this company in order for you to be profitable? People don't teach you that at university. University is essentially, you, you could be the brightest, most academic Albert Einstein in the world, but if you have no idea how to apply it, you're no good for a company. You need to be able to apply that knowledge. So, for example, I got a 2-2 in my law degree. I passed my legal practice course, didn't get a merit, didn't get a distinction, just passed it. But because I was a quick learner and I was willing to learn in the job and I had to pick up commercial awareness very quickly, so you know your worth, I then managed to obviously not only get a paralegal position, but after three years get a training contract, then become a qualified lawyer. And... A lot of law companies, if you get a first in a law degree, great. You've obviously worked really hard or you're just really bright. Um, and can just get a first. But even if you've got a first in a law degree and you get a distinction on the LPC, that still does not guarantee you a training contract to become a lawyer. Because if you can't apply that knowledge in a practical scenario and you go into a workplace and you literally have to think on your feet but all you've been taught at university is how to pass an exam. It, 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 it doesn't teach you any practical skills, the LLB law degree. It's literally just exam focused, coursework focused. Then when you, when you do the legal practice course, that is more practical. Um, but then when you get into the big bad world, the working world, and a scenario comes in that you haven't come across at university because they haven't taught you this scenario. Well, that's life. How do you deal with it? You need to be able to deal with it and think on your feet because that is one of the, the key qualities for 
a lawyer, you need to have commercial awareness, which they don't teach at university, which they should do. Um, and it needs to be more practical. I mean, yes, they have these mooting uh, tournaments whereby you can practice being a, a barrister and putting forward arguments, which is which is great. You I mean, dress up I, really beautiful and you put on your lipstick and you put on that beautiful yeah. dress and then you go and say, oh, yeah. your honour and it feels really important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there needs to be more of a practical element to a law degree, like there is with the nursing degree. With a nursing degree, you have to go to various wards, different types of wards to get a feel for how that ward operates, whether you like that, which is a better way to do a, a degree if you have a variety of placements than you do law and you've studied family law and you really love it or you've studied wills and probate which if you really love that you're definitely boring um but then when you actually go into that field and you think hang on a minute this isn't for me but it's so difficult to get legal experience because there is so much competition but they should really include that within the law degree so you you can get experience within a working environment in different areas of the law. So by the time you finish your law degree, you've probably got a rough idea as to which pathway you want to go down. I think this is a very, very good idea. Um, Germany has started doing something similar decades ago, however, not in the legal field. Um, I grew up in Germany and um, a lot of my friends went on to do a so-called dualis studium, which means dual studies. And it can have slightly different formats, but the idea is always that you have 50% study at a university and 50% work in a company. And therefore, usually you'll then have to commit to working for three years or something after you graduated at that same company, but you have a guaranteed job. And either it's like a one week work one week study or it's a semester work a semester study or it's morning evening but it's somehow divided in that way but this only exists for engineering and i think economics and perhaps um this one thing called like economic psychology which is basically the, what the hr people do if i understand it correctly and i loved that idea when i started looking for universities but <laughs> i I wanted to do human rights, I wanted to do law, I wanted to do politics. And therefore the only option for me was to do a full-time study and then just try to find whatever internships I could get on mm -hmm. the side. And therefore there is definite potential for that and it is possible. Now we just need to have the economic incentives in place in a neoliberal capitalist world for the education systems to acknowledge but this is a way forward, not just with economics and engineering, but with all those other essential social tasks. So to wrap up, so Steve, I'm taking a tradition that you tend to have in your podcast episodes in which you want to end on a light note, on a fun note with a little question to get away from the horrors that have been discussed beforehand sometimes. And the question that 
I came up for you, which was a task because you've already asked uh, a bunch of questions to your podcast guests and you have answered many of those. So I had the honor of coming up with something innovative. And what I came up with is, well, I was watching a movie. I was watching one of those spy movies. It was Jason Bourne. And Jason Bourne, you know, he has to drop everything. And he gets a fake ID and he goes undercover in a different country, takes on a new name and a totally new identity. And while he's on the airplane, he's rehearsing what his relatives' names are, what his background is, how many siblings he has, what his birthday is. And I was wondering, if you had to drop everything, what would your fake passport say about you? And where would you go? And what identity would you take? Um, so I've kind of thought about this. Um, and I would probably say that I would want to be James Bond, essentially. I mean, who who doesn't want to be James Bond? I mean, a guy that literally is a double agent, goes to lovely uh, countries on mission. I mean, that would just be absolutely brilliant to like, I mean, to, to even work for MI6. I mean, obviously I know M MI5 has recently uh, got an Instagram account, bizarrely. Wow, they're um, going with the times. <laughs> Yep. Um, but I mean, wouldn't that just be so cool to be a double agent and be oh. James Bond? I you mean, might but... die in the process. Somebody might come and try to assassinate you, but think big. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, but he he never dies. Apart from one film when he died and he came back to life. Yes, I do recall that one. <laughs> That was like, you know, Sherlock Holmes, where the author was like, oh, I want to kill him off. He's big to bother me, yeah. but the audience wants him back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that would be a dream to be James Bond. I mean, I, I think every guy would want that lifestyle. I mean, I mean, just, just look at all the gadgets. I mean, all the nice cars. <laughs> if, if you've got someone sat by you that's annoying you, you can just press the ejector button and boom. Okay, so you would need a huge budget to pull this off, but um, <laughs> shall be done. Well, Steve, thank you for um, having me interview you on your own podcast. It has been a pleasure. And I wish the listeners a lovely remaining day with whatever they are doing and hope that everybody stays safe. <laughs>